This morning is June 12, 2005. Uh, I did not intend to be preaching about uh, a series, but it's kind of turned into that. I love when the Holy Spirit organizes this. Three weeks ago, we preached on a Christian's approach to war. You all remember? Kind of the unofficial title was War, What Is It Good For? <laughs> war is an acronym in a Christian's life that teaches you how to engage the enemy. You start in worship that produces in you the right kind of attitude and it leads to revelation or your marching orders. When you have a worshipful life, it develops in you an attitude that is that of Christ which allows you to hear God's voice that tells you what to do and you're successful in your campaign. The next week, we looked at centrifugal Christianity. The things that were invested in Jesus, the man, were spent or literally spent, outward towards everyone outside. Christians' lives are supposed to be focused outward. God placed things in you that radiate outward. That was last week. Uh, we looked in Acts about how it started in Jerusalem, but the natural flow of things took it to Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. A Christian's life is most healthy when your life is focused outwards. The world is always centripetal. Inward. How's this going to affect me? What about me? What about me? Me, 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 me. A Christian's life places everyone else's needs before their own. And as we all do that, all of our needs are met. Well, here would be the third in, in a series. Like I said, it's a Holy Ghost series, not something I intended to do. It would be the ABCs of Christianity. Now, tell me about ABCs. When did you learn that? Oh, yeah. This is, this is these days in kindergarten. ABCs are an elementary Doctrine. ABCs are what you need to learn in the very beginning so that all the other building blocks work. You can't very well learn to read without learning your ABCs, can you? You certainly can't learn to write. So, suffice it to say, this is something that has to get right in the beginning of your walk. This morning, ABCs, ABC, is action-based Christianity. We live in a... Y'all got it? Action-based Christianity. We live in a society that tells you what is important is what you believe. This is not true. People talk about possessing faith. They talk about having beliefs. And the Bible does not at all emphasize what you believe. It emphasizes what you do. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to see an important thing about biblical thought. One of the problems with us, without getting into all of the Hebrew and Greek tenses of verbs and all of those confusing things, is that we speak about faith as a noun, something that's possessed, and the Bible speaks about faith as an action. Uh, it's not that it can't be a noun, but it, faith in a general sense is believing something to the extent that you begin to act like it's true. Any one of those two elements that is wrong, both belief and action, or that is not present, and it's not real faith. And we'll look at that in James. So it's not simply enough to say that we believe anything. To get the foundational part of Christianity right, your belief has got to be rooted in action. Y'all in Corinthians? In uh, 1 Corinthians, starting in 1, verse uh, 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through his wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Now, I know I'm stopping in the middle of a verse here. That's a really important thing that you need to get right down into your biblical understanding. Let this be an elementary truth for you that is a building block that you can look at the Scripture in. We live in a society that is based on Greek culture. We look for wisdom. As Western people, when we describe things, we describe appearances. When we talk in conversation, we look for one point to build upon the next in an unbroken line of wisdom. This is not how Middle Eastern people think. This is not how the Bible was written. Not that it doesn't have wisdom or logic. It certainly does. It's built around the sign. Paul said here, Jews look for a sign and Greeks look for wisdom. Jews looked at things according to function and Greeks looked at things according to wisdom. He said, well, I don't want one without the other. You don't have to. But it's very important when we look at the Scripture, you get the right filter on because this will make lots of things make sense. A great example would be a friend that was at Bridges for Peace. When he got to Israel, he began to describe everything that was in their doctrinal statement to a woman who asked, why are you here? She asked, why are you here? Okay, Why did you come to Israel? His answer was, because I founded an organization that believes that the Jews are God's chosen people, that Israel is the land of God's choosing that He prepared for the Jewish people. He began to describe what he believed, and the woman looked right at him and said, this is all good, but what do you do? When she asked why you were here, he thought, what belief, what, what, what motivates you to get here? She was literally asking him, what are you here to do? That's a really different kind of uh, understanding. In fact, when Paul was in the meeting of the Oropagus in Acts 16, here was a difference of culture. Paul began to describe what Jesus came to do without describing the wisdom and the logic behind each step, and they didn't understand. And as soon as he got to the place where he talked about Jesus being raised from the dead without explaining why he needed to be raised from the dead, they cut him off. They didn't listen. That was an example of Jew in Greek culture. And the two didn't make sense. Now, those that were smart stuck around, heard what else Paul had to say, and had other meetings on the subject. But it's very important that the two hemispheres of the world learn to understand each other's thoughts. I heard somebody on the radio here, not radio, uh, not CNN, on the cable news, I don't watch CNN, on the cable news begin to talk about what Mahmoud Abbas is saying in Israel. You remember he came here uh, recently and he, he spoke with the president? And they asked somebody, is it, is it really a problem? And this was an Israeli uh, diplomat. Is it a problem that President Bush has promised support for Mahmoud Abbas? He said, no, people in the Middle East don't really care what President Bush says. They will watch to see what he does. Now, that was a secular guy that said that. This is true of that entire hemisphere. They watch actions rather than words. So you can stand up and promise peace, but if they see you declaring war not declaring, but actually doing war, they know that it wasn't true. Does that make sense? Okay. 
So that's going to be one of the tenets of what we're doing today. Your actions, your functions in Christianity display what you believe. They display what you really are, not what you simply acknowledge as intellectually true. Look at John 10, 37. PLO chairman. Actually, they don't call it PLO anymore. It's the Palestinian Authority. It used to be the Palestinian Liberation Organization and uh, because of some treaties inspired by uh, the Clinton administration, they changed it to the Palestinian Authority and were supposed to change their charter to no longer include the destruction of Israel and acknowledge Israel as a nation. That didn't happen. They changed the name, but none of their doctrine. Uh, we're going to John 10. Americans don't. They don't. Israel was almost fully compliant with all of the Oslo Accords. The Palestinian Authority was almost zero compliance. A good video on the subject is Relentless. We're going to publish it on our website here soon. I'm trying to figure out how to do it. Are you all in John 10? In John 10, starting in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If He called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, what about the One whom the Father set apart as His very own and sent Him into the world? Why then do you accuse Me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's Son. Do not believe Me unless I do what My Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe Me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. Now, I've got a whole chapter of this on the Internet, so I don't want to teach all of this. But what I want you to get here is the attitude of Jesus presenting to the culture. If this doesn't make sense to you, and it should because the Scripture can't be broken and God's already written about it, but if this doesn't make sense to you, look at what I am doing. And that ought to prove to you. In fact, get this. Do not believe me unless I do what the Father says for me to do. Now, how opposite is that of the church? The church basically has the attitude that parents have said to their kids for years. Don't do what I do, do what I say. Jesus had the attitude, do not believe me unless. How many churches, this includes ours, could stand up and say, do not believe the message we preach unless you see me functioning as a Christian. See, the world's been taught to look for perfection in Christians. In fact, they detect hypocrisy and they turn the whole thing away. What I would submit to you today that what a Christian's life is about is not perfection. It's not about always crossing the T and dotting the I. It's about the sum total of your life showing actions that represent the beliefs that you profess to have. See, there are times that I'm going to blow it and step on David's toe. But if David can look at the actions of my life and see that the vast majority of them are outward focused and not inward focused, or the deeds of Christ, then he can identify me as a Christian without ever getting a doctrinal statement from me. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out disciples, right? 72 of them. In all of his instructions, he never told them really what they were to preach. Actually, he did. But when he told them what to preach, he didn't tell them what to say. He told them what to do. 
See, in Christianity, we have a thought that we proclaim certain things. You need to tell them Jesus is Lord. You need to tell them that Jesus died for their sins. You need to tell... No, friends. You need to show them that Jesus is Lord. You need to show them that Jesus died for their sins. Well, dear God, how are we going to do that? Well, they will see you as an object of mercy. They will see you at times failing and God's anointing on you anyway. They will see you less than perfect and still blessed by God. See, we show the love of God, not just talk about the love of God. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. It's funny, He didn't call you a loudspeaker. He didn't call you a megaphone. He didn't say you will be like a thousand watt stereo on top of Mount Zion, blasting 24 hours a day. He said, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. A city on a hilltop can't be hidden. Let your light shine before men. Let's watch something here. How much noise did that make? I just turned on and off the lights. How much noise is that making? Not very much noise, is it? But you can see it. Jews look for a sign. Greeks look for wisdom. Our lives should show something. Now, there's a problem with that. Not everybody's very perceptive, are they? What if you're living like a Christian and they just don't notice? Well, then they're not fit for the kingdom of God. The Bible tells you to be prepared to give an answer for those that ask. See, when you're in the midst of trouble and everybody is complaining and griping and arguing and you're not, God will begin to move in someone's heart to say, Matthew, why, why didn't this bother you? God will move on their hearts. We are so proactive, taught to win souls, taught to be so vocal. We want to tell everybody what we believe all of the time. Your life should inspire a question. Recently, I was told that something about my life was discouraging to uh, an unbeliever. And at first, that really hit me hard. And I thought, well, praise God, this is a chance for her to see that I'm just like she is, desperately in need of mercy. I'm going to quit telling her what I believe. I'm going to start letting her see the way that I live. Now, in reality, I think that had more to do with how it made somebody else feel than the lost person. It's funny. The Christians are always harder on other Christians than the lost are. Isn't that amazing? A religious spirit is a really difficult thing. Christians devour each other. Backbite. You know, two churches cannot get along. They can't sit side by side. They feud. The lost don't even do that. You'll find the lost will watch and they'll be surprised by the things you do. It's the religious that will come in and say, you didn't do that right. Well, you're not living your life for the religious, are you? You're living your life hoping that the lost will get saved. In James 2, Y'all sit with me? We're doing all right? Okay. ABCs of Christianity, the building blocks. Christianity is built upon the principle that Christians have an action-based Christianity. James is hiding from me here. In James 2, Thompson Chain, that's page 1344. Look at this, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother... Now, I want you to get this. We're talking about brothers. He's talking to Christians. Jewish Christians, but Christians. 
Jews who are followers of the way. I don't know. There is no good way to say this. He's talking to believing Jews who have accepted Yeshua as their Messiah. And his question is, can your faith save you? Isn't that interesting? We have the idea if we believe we're in the house of God, it's a done deal, good to go. The parables of Matthew do not present it that way. It talks about fish who are caught and brought ashore in a net. And the bad ones are thrown out. It talks about people who are all invited to a wedding. They get the invitation, respond to it, and come to the banquet. But some are found to be unworthy. We find out from just reading the book of Matthew, and I know I'm in James, but I just wanted to tell you, (laughs) that not all who are called are chosen. As a Christian, it is required that you do the will of the Father. This is what got me saved in Matthew 7. It's not enough to believe. You must do the will of God. He says, uh, can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. In other words, faith or belief that does not produce an action in you is not real faith. My God, that disqualifies an awful lot, doesn't it? We go to Sunday school and talk about what we believe. We come out and say, boy, that was a good or bad message or whatever, and we believe this. If there are no actions that put into practice what you learn, it's futile. It's for naught. Nothing. Dead. It's not living. Your beliefs must be displayed in your actions. Say, but wait a minute, none of us are perfect. We're talking about the sum total of your life. The fruit on a tree. Not the one bad apple. We're talking about the sum total of your life. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Sounds like Protestants and Catholics, huh? Show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You can see there's a hint of sarcasm there. Sarcasm, sarcasm. <laughs> he goes on to talk about Abraham justified by faith. Abraham believed, and the Bible says it was credited as righteousness. But that statement's written after Abraham showed that he believed by offering Isaac as a sacrifice. His belief with his actions both worked together to show his faith was real, and that was credited to him as righteousness. The way in the Bible you know whether somebody believed what the message was, was how they acted afterwards. I got this revelation one time and preached about a smile. Being a testament to the powers in the heavenlies that you believe the message. People look at me like, what are you talking about? Oh, when the angels showed up, they announced to those shepherds, we bring you a great message of good news. Well, if you're walking around with a big frown on your face... Your very actions are showing that you did not believe the message was good news. Because when you get good news, you smile, friends. How many of you got told you won the lottery today and produced a frown? You know, Oh, no. Now I'm going to be burdened with how do I spend all of that money? No, yeah, of course, that's ridiculous. The verse that I want you to come away with out of this before we move on is, I will show you my faith by what I do. I was in a store in the Jerusalem, in uh, old city Jerusalem, in the Jewish quarter called Shurashim. This is a Jewish man who has 
befriended Christians. He's learned for business it's good. And also, he's found some things that he thinks are admirable about Christians. And I remember he told me right, right up front in the conversation, he said, Eric, I like many things about Christians. He said, but there are some things that I don't like. And what we need to agree upon is what the Apostle Paul said. We need to agree that if I don't understand something, it's simply, or I don't believe something, that God's veiled it. And that God will remove the veil when He wants to. In other words, He did not want me to beat on Him constantly about what I thought He should believe. He wanted me to leave it between He and God and let God remove the veil if there was one there. The second thing that He told me was, out of all of the New Testament books, and I was very impressed that He had read them, I didn't expect that, James was His favorite. He said, to me, James is the most Jewish book. And I'm thinking, do you not read Hebrews? You know? To him, James was the most Hebrew book because of this kind of statement. I will show you my faith by what I did. Every Christian he had ever met said, I'm different than the others. Every Christian he had ever met talked about those Christians as bad Christians, but they're a good one because of what they believe. He just wanted to see somebody who said, the proof is in the pudding. Watch my life. And he agreed to have fellowship with Christians and watch their lives. Now, what's funny is, in a lot of ways, he displayed the attributes of a Christian more so than Christians. But then again, he's a part of the root that was declared to be holy and we're branches from it. This thing's about his race, not ours. I'm not teaching dual covenants. I'm just telling you, it's, it's awful strange to meet a Jew who has not accepted Yeshua who lives a life that seems more full of the fruit of the Spirit than Christians. Somewhat convicting. Sometimes we talk so much about what we believe. And we hold ourselves as superior to others because we believe this and they believe that. It would be so much better just to go feed somebody. When the sheep were separated from the goats, the basic difference was that the sheep fed people, clothed people, invited people in. The goats did not, did not, did not. You find out that in the New Testament, it is about what you did and did not do. The belief is simply what motivated the actions. Are we clear? Okay, we're clear. In James 1.22, I want to cover this with you. Because I know you know these things. But I want to remind you. Put signs above the door. I talk to you about this a lot. Because it's important that what you carry out of the service is something that you act upon during the week. In James 1.22... Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, get get this, and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in all he does. I'm not professing to stand up today and tell you some new concept, something that you don't know. I'm telling you to continue to make this your life's practice. Wake up in the day with the idea that you are working in God's kingdom as one of God's sons. What would He have you to do today? I want you to think first about doing and second about talking. That's very hard for me. In fact, we have the idea as American Christians that if I cut David's grass, 
because I want to show the love of God that I've done something wrong by not explaining my actions. Now, David, I did this because... That's nowhere in the Bible. That is nowhere in the Bible at all. Leave room for God to minister to someone. And even, God forbid, and I'm not teaching sales techniques here, but leave some room for question. Let them wonder a little bit why. You don't have to explain always. Let there be some hunger that begins to grow, some thirst, so that God has an opportunity to meet it. And you know what? You plant the seed and someone else may water it. Well, we don't like that. You walk in, you introduce a good deed, you explain the good deed, and then you want to close the deal right there. What if God wants to do this over several months or years? And you may never even know that it happens. We don't like that very much because we're so concerned about their souls or because you're so concerned that you see a reward for your work. When we signed up in Christianity, we stopped questioning the wisdom of God and we started pledging obedience whether it looked right or not. One plants, one waters, but God always gets the increase. You don't need to see a reward for your work. You simply need to know that you're doing what God told you to do. That you're doing what God told you to do, not believing what God told you to believe. What good is it to believe that God will meet someone's needs? What good is that at all? When you have the means to meet their needs, you also believe that you are God's hands and feet on the earth, but you do nothing to meet the need. What good is that? I believe you can fly. Well, that's great. That means nothing to me unless you jump off of a building or something. It makes no difference. You realize how hypocritical it is to say, Brother, we believe God will meet all of your needs. And you're standing there as a member of God's body, participating in His divine nature, doing nothing to meet the needs. What you're basically saying through your actions is, we believe God wants to do it, but we're not willing to participate in it. We believe God can heal you. Just, He's going to have to use somebody else to do it, because we do not have the faith to stand up and pray for you to get out of the wheelchair. We need to make sure our actions don't deny what we profess to believe. Do this continuously. James says, do it continuously and you'll be blessed in what you do. If what you are trying to do is put into practice the Word, God can't help but bless what you do. Because your heart and your mind is sold out for His will. Alright, y'all are bored with that, I can tell. I'm running that principle in the ground. I'm starting to see eyes go, okay. Turn with me to John 5. In John 5, we see a man who's been in a certain condition for 38 years. That's hard to fathom. That is a long prison sentence, is it not? I mean, if somebody hurts somebody in your family, you want them to go to jail forever, right? Can you imagine being confined for five years? Confined. How about for ten? What if you're 15 and you commit a crime that is a 20-year sentence? You know, more than... More years than you've already been alive, you're going to be in jail. Isn't that a long time? This guy was confined to a mat. He couldn't get up off of his mat, his bed mat, for 38 years. How long? He had never known anything but bondage. Listen to this. John 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. That's a good message, by the way, if you want to download that one at some time. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. 
One who was there had been an invalid. I hate that word, invalid. Think about what that means, literally. Would you want to be called invalid? Invalid. For 38 years. He'd been something less than whole. He'd been confined, bound by something for for his basically whole life. 38 years. He'd been less than whole, less than normal. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. This is an important principle about salvation. If you did have the means to save yourself, if it is a measure of you versus someone else, there will always be somebody better. How many of you would like to look at your life and compare it for holiness content as measured against Brad Lively? Or some other person. I'm using Brad because he's my close friend and I know him well. You understand what I'm saying? If what it took to get saved was for you to live a more holy life than someone else, that wouldn't be good for most of us. Because there's always someone else that, at least outwardly, seems more holy. This guy says, yes, I want to get better. But man, I don't seem to have what it takes to get down in the pool. Somebody else gets there before me. Jesus was taking him to a point where he realized he could not work for salvation. There was nothing that he could do to bring it about. Well, how on earth does that fit in with this message, I wonder? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. I went through this whole exercise to show you that the relationship between faith and works is this. No amount of works could get you saved. No amount of works causes faith to be there. That's not how it works. But whenever faith is present, once you are saved, the first thing that you do is begin the work that shows salvation. The guy could not get into the pool to get saved. But the moment he became obedient to Jesus' Word and salvation came, he got up, picked up his mat or his burden, and he began to walk. You don't work to get saved. You work because you are saved. Ephesians 2 tells us that the reason Jesus saved you, in a nutshell was to do the good works which God prepared in advance for you to do. When He saved you, He saved you with a purpose in mind. He wanted you to do something. Now, when I say that, you think, oh, that's a long ways off. That's some distant calling. One day, when I'm in my calling, I'll preach to thousands. I'll lead worship to thousands. I'll write books that everybody reads. One day. No, He wants you to do something starting today. He wants you to do something now. Let's start with what you've been giving and see if God will multiply it. Don't think about a calling in the distance. Think about a calling that is changing your children's diapers today and doing a fine job of it. That is sweeping your kitchen floor today. That is preparing an environment that when people walk into, they feel the presence of God today. Your calling is what you're doing today. The ABCs of Christianity are your actions that show Christ today. Not tomorrow. Not in the future. Not somewhere else. It's right now. 
If you can't do it today while sweeping the kitchen floor, what makes you think you could do it when you're facing the communist guard and there's a dead body in front of you that you need to raise from the dead? You can't. In fact, the entire parable in Matthew 25 about the talent seems to emphasize that. But let me read you a shorter parable in Matthew 21. Y'all already know all of this. You're bored. You're tired. You want to go somewhere else? <laughs> Show that. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Help us out here. In Matthew 21, starting in uh, verse 28. Incidentally, do you have a, a title heading for this? In your NIV Bible, what is above verse 28? Oh, it's not the parable of one believer and unbeliever. No? No, it wasn't titled the parable of the saved and the lost? No. And both are sons here. How interesting. Let's read about these two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, (laughs) I almost said repented, changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus told them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. He's talking about people called to inherit the kingdom. Some did what the Father wanted them to do. Others professed it, said they believed it, but never did it. How did Jesus know that prostitutes and tax collectors were entering the kingdom of God ahead of the Pharisees? He saw what they did. In fact, John the Baptist, when the Pharisees came out to him, what did he tell them? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Instead, go and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, Ah, we have Abraham as our father. Don't cling to your heritage. I'm telling you there must be action that shows that you believe God. You understand the difference here? Both are sons, though. See, we have the attitude that when we read this, oh, that's the lost and this is the saved. No. Within those, this group right here, that claims to be sons of God, some will do God's will and some won't. That's a whole different perspective on Matthew's parables. Read those. Some interesting outcomes. I want to be found to have the right kind of garment on personally. Because there are those that answer the invitation, get all the way to the wedding banquet. And the king seems somewhat surprised. He says, Who are these people without the right kind of garments on? Revelation teaches that the garments are the righteous acts of the saints. It's the room outside. Separation of a sheep and goat. Every parable... You bring me a parable in Matthew. I challenge you to do this on Wednesday. I'm sorry that that sounds so aggressive challenge, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Test me. Is that the right words? Something like that. Come and let us discuss together Any parable in Matthew, and I will show you that it revolves around people that are supposed to be in the kingdom, not those that are outside. 
Every parable given in Matthew is given to a people that are supposed to inherit the kingdom of God. There is not one of them that is focused on the lost. That's interesting. It's really interesting because when you read it, the first thing you do is separate you as the good and everything else as those that are lost. That is not what the parables of Matthew are written for. I have many of them on CD. That was a big revelation for me when we went through Matthew. In Matthew 25... We want to read the parable of the talents. After Matthew 25, I have one more illustration and then we'll close. So we'll be inside of an hour and then you'll get a chance to go and put into practice what you've heard. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 14, I want to clear something up, especially for our younger listeners. Okay? Talent, like a talent show, is a characteristic, an attribute that you have. It's an ability that you have. That is not what these talents are. That misreading has caused people to view this in a wrong way. These talents are money. Okay? You can think dollars, cents, if you want to. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Again, verse 14. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants. Interesting, he's not talking about someone else's servants or people outside of the kingdom. They're servants of this man and entrusted his property to them. You know, Corinthians 4 teaches about Paul. Galatians teaches it. A lot of places do, but Corinthians 4 says it very well. It says, men ought to regard us as servants of God. Men entrusted with the secret things of God. Entrusted with something. Paul understood he had been entrusted with something worth more than money. This parable is teaching about somebody who is entrusted with something. His property. To one he gave five talents of money. To another two talents. To another one, one talent. Each according to its ability. I want you to understand something about this distribution of the master's property. It was given according to their ability. God did not give you more anointing. God did not give you more revelation. God did not give you more of anything than He gave you the ability to administer properly. Well, I just don't know whether I can carry this burden. I don't know whether I can pastor a church. I don't know whether I can lead work. I don't know whether I can handle all of these children. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You should know that whatever He gave you is according to your ability in Him to handle That's how this is taught. If you are His servant, what He entrusted to you, the little Judah Benjamin or Gabriel Jonathan or Abigail Faith or whatever it is that He gave you, He gave you according to your ability. This ought to also free you of wondering about so-and-so. Well, I can't believe they're having another baby. You know? How are they going to handle it? If they were entrusted with that child, it was according to their ability. Are you going to criticize God? Make a shut up for me. Oh, We don't say that. We say, Shekhet. That's Hebrew for shut up. (laughs) It's always less convicting in another language. Isn't that great? (laughs) Okay. The man who had received five talents, I'm sorry, he gave them all according to his ability, then the master goes on a journey. Verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work. In other words, he did something. He put it to work. And gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid 
his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't it interesting that he equated work with faithfulness? What is your work? It is something that you do. It is an action. And to the Master, he looked at what was done and called it faithfulness. Isn't that something? We think of faithfulness as what you believe. When Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have contended for the faith, we tend to think of him, oh, he still believes after all he's been through. No! That is so ridiculous. What he's saying when he said he fought the good fight is he did the work of God no matter how hard it was to do. It was not that he still believed Jesus was who he said he was at the end of his life like the beginning. That's how we read it. But that's not what that means. It means that to the very last day, he was striving to do what God said to do. And you can hear him wrestle with it in his thoughts. He said, what shall I pray for? I'd like to kind of get out of here. But it's more beneficial for you that I stay because it means fruitful labor. He was wrestling with what would be easiest for him and what would be God's will. And he did it, and that is fighting for the faith. You are fighting for the faith, not clinging to a belief, but doing what the belief tells you to do. That is fighting for the faith. We think it's being a debate champion with the lost, arguing about what the Scriptures do and don't mean. That's child's play. I mean, it really is. Bantering around about who believes this or that. Go out and show me. Don't write a book on theology. Go out and live something that shows what you believe. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. Sometimes we forget that God is likened unto a hard man. Oh, God is love. That's right. And He loves you enough and loves me enough to burn you if you don't get it right. A hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown. Gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. Isn't it interesting that most of the time when Christians do not do the will of God, it's because they were afraid? Fear is an enemy of faith. Don't talk about fear. Don't let it dwell in your hearts. Don't use it as an excuse. When you hear the words come out of your mouth that you were afraid or I'm scared or you realize that fear is in you, let perfect love drive it out. Or at the very least, fear God more than you fear failure. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone 
who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I submit to you today that that worthless servant believed that the Master was a hard man and that was a correct belief. He believed that the Master harvested where he had not sown and reaped where he had not sown. And those were true beliefs. But he did not work in the kingdom. Those beliefs about his Master did not cause him to act accordingly. Instead, he refused to do anything. He just hid. Now, I learned this principle while I was in banking. I heard a story about a woman. This true story, not a story somebody read in a pastor's book somewhere. About a woman in the 70s that was given a million dollars and she didn't know what to do with it and she was scared and she wanted it at her disposal and somewhat uneducated in banking, so she put it in a checking account. Now, because I was an investment salesman at the time, this story was being used to illustrate the need to instruct people in the proper way to invest. Because from 1970 to in the 90s, when I was working for this company, the graph illustrated how much money she lost. What do you mean lost? She still had a million dollars. She had a million dollars in 1996. So from 76 to 96, how did she lose money? Well, there's this principle called inflation. And what that million dollars would buy in 1976 was a whole lot more than what it would buy in 1996. God has invested in us something. He has deposited something in you that with the right worshipful attitude and His revelation and direction should with centrifugal force go out from you to all areas of the earth. Your actions should be carrying this investment to produce more. If you sit on what you have, like that woman's million dollars, it's tantamount to stealing from God. It's the same thing. Because if He had invested what He invested in you, in someone else, they would have done something with it. There is a number to the body of Christ. And a full number comes in. There is no room No seat for those that will not produce the kingdom's fruit because God is after something. Do you want to work next to a soldier that does not want to fight? (laughs) I don't. I would rather, if we can only take ten, if there can only be ten people on this mission, I want the other nine to be just as sold out as I am because there's only ten seats. Ten of us are going to have to fight. I want the right ten. And apparently that's how God works as well. Turn with me to 1 Kings. We're going to close with this. No, tell me. No, he's teaching. All of those parables in Matthew, particularly the ones in the last week of his life, he was teaching to his disciples. You know, these are not parables for the lost. Hey, you, everyone who's out there who's not saved, who doesn't believe that I'm Lord, let me tell you what's going to happen. That's not what these are. These are all you who call me Lord, who are servants, who are sons, who are in the kingdom. Let me explain how this works. Just because you're a son, that's not enough. Just because you're invited and you show up, that's not enough. And he closes it with the parable of the sheep and goats, which I probably should have read today, but Keith Green has a song about it. It's wonderful. Listen to the song. Or... 
sometime, other than Sunday or Wednesday, crack open that little thing that is your basic instructions before leaving earth. Crack open that and read it. It'll take you all of 30 seconds and it'll change your whole life. Judah knows how to read. You can read that, can't you? That's right. We can read. That's, I'm, he's not at bar mitzvah age yet, but that's when I'll be able to pray, Thank you, God, I am released from my obligation. Once you are able to read these words for yourself, nobody else is under an obligation to show you what God's will is. You have in your hands the book of life. Do you treat it like that? You ought to have to bind that thing in elephant hide. It should get used so much. If you're only opening it here, you're doing yourself a huge disservice. No matter how great or hopeful to be effective or whatever it is I ever get as a preacher, I cannot give you enough in a couple hours to sustain you through a week. Listen to it on tape. Listen to it on CD. Read it. Pour it into you every possible way that you can. You need it. Trust me, you do. The days are growing evil. And the saints of God are supposed to shine. That only happens when you live like God wants you to. In 1 Kings, the 17th chapter... It's on page 396. Something's happened. God has chosen through Elijah. What is Elijah most famous for? What what does the book of James tell us about Elijah and gets quoted about the prayer of a righteous man and all of that? He shut up the heavens. Elijah stopped rain. So who is responsible for that? Elijah. In 17.1, now Elijah the Tishbite, from Tish, gotta love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Eric the American, from America, in Galead, said to Abraham, or Ahab, big difference between Abraham and Ahab, I'll try not to make that mistake again. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. All's good so far, right? Laying aside the fact that a raven's an unclean bird and that... Nobody would have believed Elijah if he told them God said do this. You ever been in that scenario where God told you to do something that nobody else seemed to believe? It's uncomfortable as all get out, but you get to find out that you're with God and He's with you. Because if nobody will stand and support you, there's nobody left to support you but God. Good place to be. I don't know that you sign up for it and say, oh, please, could you put me in a position where nobody will understand and I'll have to stand with just you? But it's essential. It's part of your ABCs as Christians. Watch what happens. He gets fed, right? It's all good. God's providing. Starting in verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Why was there no rain in the land? There was a drought that Elijah caused. Do you think Elijah was second guessing? I shouldn't have shut up the heavens. I shouldn't have prayed because now I've got nothing to drink. If only I had not done that. 
Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. This is getting better all the time. First, be fed by an unclean bird. Now, go out there among the Gentiles. Go stay there. What were Jews not supposed to do? Peter wouldn't go into a house with Gentiles before Jesus taught him about it. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. Y'all, this defies all possible reason. There is a famine in the land that Elijah has caused by praying and shutting up the heavens. Now he's going to a Gentile's house, a widow, somebody who does not have a husband to provide for her. Right? And he says, hey, look, I I know that there's this little rain problem. And gosh, I don't know how that happened. (laughs) It's me. But uh, do you mind feeding me? Why didn't he send send him to a rich guy? Why didn't God send him to a king or somebody? He had ordered a widow to supply him. In the middle of a drought that the Lord had used Elijah to proclaim, and now is supposed to be asking this foreigner, who isn't even in God's nation, to provide for him. Y'all, does that make sense to you? I want you to remember that when we read these stories, these were men and women just like us. It does not have to make sense to you. Greeks look for wisdom and Jews look for a sign. This does not have to make sense to you. If you were in this boat, you would have reasoned out in your mind, well, God wouldn't tell me to be fed by a raven. I mean, that's an unclean bird. Well, God wouldn't have sent me to Zarephath. I mean, that's among the unbelievers. Well, if He sent me to Zarephath, God wouldn't have caused a widow to have to feed me. She doesn't have anything. You would have found all of the ways to reason God right out of your thinking. But as a Christian, you signed up for not something that made sense to you. You signed up for being obedient to God regardless of the consequence and regardless of whether you understood. How big of a God would He be if He couldn't see anything you couldn't see? This looks fruitless. This looks hopeless. This looks ludicrous. And yet, if you're obedient... You can find blessing in it. Watch what happens. As surely as the Lord your God... Get that. He might even underline it. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replies, I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. She's not on the height of of provision. She's not blessed so that she can bless. She's not running around like all of the people on TV saying, I'm rich and you can be rich too. In fact, when this guy shows up, she says, well, surely it's the Lord your God, not my God, not our God, as surely as the Lord your God lives. I'm just gathering some stuff for my last meal, so we're going to die. And by the way, whose fault was that really? Elijah, isn't it amazing how God will cause you to be in a position with people that think that you wronged them? He'll cause you to rub shoulders. I mean, you did something in God's will trying to be a blessing to them and they just don't perceive it that way. God will put you in the most uncomfortable places. She had no hope. 
God had sent Elijah to a woman who had the sentence of death in her heart. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. It's amazing how many times the Bible says, Do not be afraid. Take a concordance. Look that up sometime. And then, Do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. Except that dying part. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Now, I'm not going to teach on the tithe today, but isn't it interesting? He said to her, Hey, look, I know you think you're going to go home and die, but uh, first go home and make something for me to eat. First be obedient to God and then trust God for your provision. We have such an opposite idea. First let me make sure that my provision is taken care of and then I will give to God. The Bible always presents it in the opposite way. Now, why would that be? Is it because God cares about your money? Not at all. But it sure does take faith. Or in, this is an action that shows that you have faith. But that's a whole other message. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. The message to this foreigner who had no hope was to obey the God of Israel and that He would be provision for her. The provision does not come from the brook. The brook can dry up. The provision does not come from just rain out of the sky. Rain can stop. God put this woman in a position where she could see provision came from God. We fight so hard not to get into those positions. MasterCard's right there to bail you out. American Express is there for 30 days anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Visa's right there to help you. Maybe some relative is there to help you. Anything but allow you to get put in a position where you have to learn that God is your only source of provision. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word the Lord had spoken by Elijah. So what's the deal? God came, sent Elijah there to a woman with the sentence of death in her heart. And the word was, God will provide for you if you're only obedient to Him. So, she gets saved or not? Sometimes, even when God provides in a drought, it is not enough to persuade the lost. But thanks be to God that He is not willing that any should perish, because He will keep working with us to cause them to come to Him. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, isn't that interesting? Why, would, why did Elijah show up? What did he do for her? He's been sustaining her this whole time. Him being there is the only reason the woman didn't eat her last meal and die with her son. But after this time period of provision, this woman's not born again yet. She's not calling on the God of Israel yet. In fact, Elijah's presence in her life reminds her of sin. You wonder why the lost act the way they do around you sometimes? Why do they pounce on one little thing that you do that is wrong when they've been doing things wrong all day in their whole life? Why? Because your life reminds them of sin. So they're looking for any opportunity to blame you for something. Because that will lessen you. That will make you more like them and alleviate the condemnation and conviction that is on their life. 
without God removing it. That's why. But as Christians, what do you do? Does Elijah say, remind you of your sin? Well, step off, lady. I'm going somewhere else. I can go eat in any widow's house in Zarephath. I carry the power of God with me. I'm divine, anointed, chosen, all of that stuff, and you're just out. Now, God put him in this very position so that his actions, which is what Christianity is about, would accomplish something. The people of God always suffer attack from the lost. Notice that she mentions that his presence was reminding her of sin. Our presence in the lives of the lost is used by God to convict and remind them of sin. Finally, she laid the worst insult on him. She accused him of killing her son, though he was the very thing sustaining her and her son. Your obedience to God and kindness to the lost often looks unappreciated. But hang in there. This is where many would have just gotten offended and left. But God requires us to love without limit and endure without retaliating. Love without limit and endure without retaliating. Verse 19, Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him in her arms. And he took him from her arms. Carried him to the upper room where he was staying. And laid him on his bed. You want to do the works of God? You have to be willing to take lost people. To take those that offend you. Those that hurt you. Those that act unjustly towards you. Right into your personal space. You know why? When you were a leper, Jesus reached out to touch you. When you were unclean and not yet a friend of God, He called you friends. God did that to you. Now it's required that we act like God when people are ugly to you. When they act in a way that is unbecoming of normal human decency towards you, you take them in to be your friend. You take them into your personal space. He didn't take him in the house. He took him upstairs to his bedroom. His little loft. You know, his personal space. When we take people to be close into our lives and the actions of God are present there, you know what? They see God. They don't have to wonder what you believe. They see what you believe. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried, Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. What does stretching out on him have to do with anything? Rubbing shoulders with lost people. People that you want to run from because they're hurting you. Stretching yourself out on them. Allowing them to see what you are made of through your actions allows what's in you to get on them. This guy was dead. With dead people, what would you like to do? Go the other way. They stink. They're nasty. Elijah knew that if he laid on this boy eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, what God had placed in him because of the centrifugal nature of God's power would go out from him and into the boy. Now, this is like when you're placed in that work situation next to the one person that you would like not to work with. Don't be surprised. That's why God put you there. Nobody else wants to work with that person either. But what's in you can get on them. This is how God uses your actions to spread His kingdom. You don't sit down and give them a doctrinal statement. 
You show them what you believe through your life and they are won over. This is how lives change. How, how many people in here were saved from a track? Raise your hand. Okay, we got one. A tract. One of those little paper things. How many of you were saved from hearing one sermon? Okay, well, we're batting zero here. I would venture to guess most of you are saved from rubbing shoulders with Christians over a long period of time, seeing something in them that you liked, seeing something about them that you wanted to imitate. That's how this happens. If you want to see the spiritually dead raised, you better get uncomfortably close with the lost. You've got to be willing to do that. You can't give up after the first time. How many times did Elijah stretch out on this boy? Three. If you are willing to do this, you say, Okay, Lord, I tried. He slapped my face. I'm going home. Okay, Lord, I tried. It didn't work. Send somebody else. It's just not my ministry, you know? I just don't feel led, called. Prison ministry, that's Claire's deal. Not my deal. Send someone else. You have to be willing to put yourself at risk. That's another message. Faith at risk. You think I'm selling these things, huh? I promise I'm not. They're free. I just want everybody to learn them. Verse 22, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. All of the miracle provision had not been enough. All of the time had not been enough. But rubbing shoulders with the lost, the actions of Elijah causing life to enter into this boy, that was enough. When do the lost get saved? When do Christians get to act like God? When our life is displayed in our actions and others see it and they join that life, it's when you're the most like God, when you love the unlovable. That is what the Christian, that's the ABCs of Christianity. Rub shoulders with the lost. Get uncomfortably close. Let them see what God placed in you. Look at verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Now I know. Before it had been the Lord your God. Before it had been provision. The prosperity gospel teaches you basically... That God is like an investment program. You invest in Him, He'll invest in you. And that this is God's means of witnessing to the lost. They'll see how blessed you are, and then they'll want that blessing. Well, so far as I can tell by God's nature, greed doesn't play into it. But look at this story with Elijah. Was it the provision in his life that caused her to get saved? Not at all. It was when she insulted him. It's when she was abusive to him and he still took them in to be close to his heart and the life that was on him overcame the death that was in them. This is how God's kingdom advanced. The elementary teachings of the Christian faith are that you must act like God. That's really not all that complicated. just hard to do. We're going to close. Remember a couple things. You've got to be willing to endure drought to see these kind of opportunities. If you are not willing to endure a drought, how are you going to be with people that need your help? Second thing to remember, this would have made no sense to you. You could have been sitting around trying to figure out God's wisdom, God's logic through all of this, and ravens and widows and Zarephath and droughts make no sense. 
But we need to stop questioning God's reasoning and only trust His wisdom. Doesn't that make sense? You know, I don't have to understand the recipe to bake a cake. I just have to trust the guy who wrote the recipe. He says, this much salt, I'd put that much salt, whether I think it needs salt or not. And if I trust the chef, it turns out all right, huh? Why would you trust the chef? Because of his outstanding reputation. Well, quit singing out of Habakkuk, Lord, I've heard of your fame, and all of those things. If you won't, just trust his instruction. Third thing. God will use those of us who are willing to go outside of our normal circle to find those that truly have no hope. Say, Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll scrub toilets for you. Yeah, but will you go sit next to the bum that stinks of vomit on the street and show him God's love? When we say we'll do anything for him, we mean in the church. We mean in our circle, amongst the believers. The salt has no need of other salt. He will only use those that do not quit or get offended when your faces are slapped figuratively or in reality. It's like being accused of killing the son. He was there to help and she accused him of killing her baby. If he had turned around and quit, this would just be a sad story. But he didn't. He will only use those of us who are willing to bring the lost into our personal space. He will only use those of us who are willing to rub shoulders with the lost until the life that is in us rubs off on them. Now, James says we're only blessed if we do these things. I want to do them. War, that message taught you how to get your marching orders. You worship, you get the right attitude, and revelation will come. Centrifugal Christianity taught you where to focus your direction, that you should be looking outward all of the time. Action-based Christianity teaches you how to apply the faith that you say that you have so that we can be productive. So when the Master comes back, we're not guilty of being wicked and lazy. I want to be a sheep. I want to be one who did something with what I was given. And I know you do too. Not hard. God will show us every opportunity. You just can't quit when it gets hard. Y'all stand up and let's pray.